welcome to Estradile Illusions, and happy Pride Month! Uh, as you probably noticed, we have been on a little bit of a semi-hiatus, and I've talked about it in other episodes, but I just finished uh, performing and recording a comedy special, Confessions from My New Vagina, which is uh, it's all on track to come out in September, and uh, really excited. Uh, performed in a small, uh, very, very small crowd, and people laughed at my jokes, which is always nice. Uh, obviously, that's kind of ideal. And um, so uh, Pride Month has kind of taken a little bit of a backseat uh, while all of that's been happening. But we do have a, uh, we do have a, a nice slate that we're excited to uh, show you, including uh, I know a lot of our listeners know that uh, kind of getting into the more historical aspects of LGBTQ culture is one of my favorite topics to dive into. And I'm really, really excited because uh, we have the director of a documentary today who uh, documentary really kind of puts a lot of these uh, current subjects that have been in the quote-unquote the discourse lately uh we have michelle handelman here uh the director of the uh, documentary blood sisters leather dykes and sadomasochism which is celebrating its 25th anniversary uh michelle how are you do you want to tell us a little bit about the film hi ann and thanks for having me on the show uh yeah it's hard to believe it's been 25 years since blood sister originally came out and actually this year probably marks 26 years. And so, um, yeah, what can I tell you about the film? Blood Sisters is a feature-length documentary on the leather dyke scene in San Francisco that was happening during the early and mid-1990s. Um, it looks at a lot of the players in the scene. It talks about a lot of the issues that were happening at that time, which of course, unfortunately, are still issues that need to be dealt with. And it you know, looks at some of the people who were part of the history makers of that time, as well as people who continue to be relevant within the scene. Um, one of the highlights of the film, I think, is we go to the 1993 Pride March on Washington. Well, it wasn't called a Pride March. It was the 1993 March for, I think back then it was called Lesbian, Gay, and Bi Rights. And um, that was probably one of the most thrilling moments I had making the film as well. So... Let's start, Ian. You got any questions? Oh, of course. Well, the, I, as, as soon as I saw this, I'm like, you know, this is absolutely perfect for listeners of the show. I know that people uh, really every every time we, I mean, younger LGBTQ people who listen, um, there's a really big desire to learn more about our history, our community, and it's it, it's the kind of film that uh, you know it it it. As somebody, well, I was born in 1991, so uh, you know, I lived through the 90s. Don't remember it super, super well, but you see all the 90s, uh, the 90s aesthetics, the music, and the transitions in the scene, and it's it's a really beautiful film in that regard. But then I also just keep thinking to myself, you know, we're seeing all of these subjects, uh, m many of which you tackle in the film, that are coming up, and I guess the best place to start. So. We have been seeing, and I guess we kind of uh, last year with uh, Pride being kind of canceled with all of the uh, COVID restrictions, and now uh, things are starting to open back up. Now we've seen the return of what what kind of feels like it's an annual topic, the notion of kink at Pride. And 
you know, you see all these like pearl clutchers. I really want to direct a lot of them to to your film because it brings this perspective of just exactly. If you sit down and watch your film, you can understand exactly why uh, Kink belongs at Pride. You know, this is Pride is a celebration of all these different uh, subcultures of our community. And to say, oh yeah, let's you know, let's sanitize this. Uh, you're not just you're you're erasing. You're you're excluding a key pillar of our activism over the years. You bring up a lot of really important points, and so I'm going to try to remember all of these and address them all right now. First of all, uh, when you were saying how great it is, you know, a lot of the younger people who listen to your podcast want to know about queer history, and that's really why the film is back out in the public right now. I mean, it did, you know, it did well when it came out in 1995 and it toured around the world multiple times at festivals, but it wasn't loved, you know? It was still like, we'll show it, but we're gonna get in trouble for this. (laughs) Or, you know, like everyone was showing it, so the festivals had to show it, but but no one other than people who were involved in kink or my European audiences really like loved the film and understood the power that these women embodied and how important their voices were to driving uh, queer activism forward. And so now that people started to become interested in it again, which is why I even started this 25 year anniversary tour and now Kino Lorber has picked it up for distribution, is because people your age, you know, you were born when I started, I, you were just born and when I was starting to shoot Blood Sisters and people your age are coming to me and seeing this film and saying they've heard about it, but they've never been able to find it. And now that they've seen it, they feel like a piece of their history has been given back to them. And, um, you know, that just means everything to me. And it really is a testament to the power of representation and how important it is that what many people might consider outsider voices, that these voices are really not outsiders, they're insiders, and they're driving the conversation forward. And I think it's taken these, you know, 25 years for your generation to step up and understand that. Although we can segue into that, you know, there are certainly people of your generation and younger who are the ones speaking out against having kink at Pride. And you know, this just brings up so many things, but you talk about pearl clutchers and how you wish people could see this film. And I'll tell you back in 95, I remember having a couple of screenings where these women would come up to me after the show and they were like, they would stand in line to talk to me. They really, really, really needed to talk to me. And they came up to me and I could see the kind of fear, confusion, and anger on their face. And they said to me, you know, I came to this screening because I'm very anti-BDSM. And I've protested against you and I don't think you should be public, you know, like I don't think you should exist, essentially. But after seeing your film, I have a new perspective. And I understand something now. 
you know, and they'd be like, not that I'm going to do it, you know, but I understand and I have respect. So, um, so yeah, people of all kinds should see this film because it really, um, you know, it just really opens up people's eyes because part of the fear of the leather scene and kink is the fear of the unknown, you know, and that's part of the reason people are drawn to it, but it's also a huge reason people are afraid of it and want to lock it up and not have to look at it. So before we get into, I mean, I could just go on for an hour and talk about <laughs> yeah. this, but so before we get into that, could, could you talk a little bit, you know, a little bit more about how you see as someone in your generation, what is this protest against having kink at pride? Because you're right. It's always been a thing. Yep. It, you know, it's always, there's always the conservative group of gays and lesbians that want to assimilate and feel like the extreme leather contingent is going to ruin their chances of getting, right. uh, you know, rights and access. But actually, it's really because of the leather people that all of the conservative leather people have gotten their rights and access. Right. Well, as a member of the trans community, I know all too well the idea of, like, you know, people rail all the time at uh, often cisgender gay men about, you know, uh, leaving, leaving like, the rest of us behind. And, I mean, a lot of that's, like, a load of nonsense. And, I mean, some of it, some of it is true. Uh, but I guess w w when we're talking about, uh, I mean, an another one of the big uh, tangential uh big discussions right now is sort of, you know, all these corporations that fly the rainbow flag. And it's like, well, are you really for uh, gay rights? Do you actually care? Disney gets a lot of, you know, they, they'll sell you a, they'll sell you a, uh, something with a rainbow pin on it, but they won't put any gay people actually in a movie that can't be edited out for Russia or China. So I guess when it comes to the, when people want to sort of make, LGBTQ culture mainstream or quote unquote normal. I don't even know what even that would mean. Uh, but when, when they look at all that kind of stuff, I, there's kind of a, uh, you know, I think I see a lot of people who, who try to see like the middle ground of being like, okay, let's be visible and we'll take all of the stuff that, that, you know, the, the leather and all of that, and we'll just move that away. And then, you know, everything can be mainstream and we'll all, it'll all be nice, clean and happy. And it's like, well, that's not really how reality works. It's not how activism works. It's all, it's all very, very messy. And I guess from my own perspective coming into, I mean, the, the, when I was first kind of figuring out, I wanted to transition all of that. And this would have been 2014, 2015 people in the kink community. I, the first time I saw your movie, uh, a friend, you know, we used to, uh, she she would bring a the DVDs or I'd have DVDs. We watch uh, often it'd be a, sort of older fantasy shows, but uh, she brought she brought a DVD of your film, and it was just kind of eye opening. And I imagine you've heard that uh, you know thousands, hundreds of a uh, lot, lot of times over the years. And uh, you know I always kind of thought, okay, the kink community was really among the most welcoming of people when I first came out. So I've always kind of mm -hmm. viewed it as you know, I'm not really involved in kink right now, but I would never say like, oh yeah, that's expendable. Let's, let's compromise. Let's get more gay rights and let's, you know, move all of that stuff that, uh, you know, the right people on the right and all of that want to like lump in with pedophilia and all of that, which your film touches on as well. 
You know, you're absolutely right. And that is part of my love and attraction to the leather community as well. I moved to San Francisco in 1986, you know, which was really the beginning of the ramping up of the AIDS crisis. And I had been involved in S&M and certainly had leather fetishes prior to moving there, but I wasn't part of the scene. And um, when I started to meet people in the scene, what I realized was exactly what you're saying. They were the most open and welcoming of anyone, of any group of people I have ever met. Um, because, you know, groups tend to be groups. They're cliques. They stick to their own. And while, of course, the leather community, you know, has its own hierarchies and its own, you know, secret hanky codes and, and all of that, you still have a group of people that are so welcoming to anyone who doesn't fit in anywhere else. And I think uh, part of what you see, you know, you have men and women playing with each other. You have people coming and just being voyeurs. Um, you have a lot of trans people within the scene. And no one's being judged for that. Everyone is welcome and has a part. And uh, one of the things I think that, you know, maybe spoke to you and other people when they see this film is in terms of trans representation and, you know, gender fluidity, that conversation that we're having now, all of that came out of San Francisco in the early 90s. You have, you know, the great, you know, who's now an incredible historian and public speaker, Susan Stryker. Judith yep. Butler, Patrick Califia, Gail S. Rubin, all of these are the people now we consider to be the leaders within the public conversation on gender fluidity and gender identity. And so they were there, and Blood Sisters captures that. And all of those women, even if they're not women and, you know, Patrick, who's, who's now a trans man, all of those people were involved in Blood Sisters to some degree, even if they're not on screen. Yeah, I uh, well, Susan Stryker is somebody I, I think she's been in at least three separate documentaries whose directors we've had on the show, including you've worked with Zachary Drucker, who was on the show in January on a film, uh, Irma Vep. Uh, we love Zachary. I have uh, I'll, Zachary will always have a special place in my heart as a, a fellow trans woman who didn't change their name. Uh, we talked about that. That was very, that's a, hard to believe it was five months ago. It feels like it was like three years ago with all of this. Um, <laughs> well, one, one thing that struck out at me in, in the film is uh, one of the subjects was talking about how, you know, especially, and it, you know, the, the importance of community back then, especially without the internet and, you know, have a, Putting yourself out there took was was so much more dangerous and and all of that because you really had to be physically out there to like meet other people. But they're talking about how you know they get so much shit for being a lesbian, and then on top of that, they also get so much shit for being a butch uh, dyke. And then from there, you, you know, you, you've got within that, you've also got all the other stuff, uh, all the shit that they get for being into the leather scene. It's just like this, just layer upon layer, and. It really stri it really drives home the importance of community because and, and also just sort of basic basic tolerance for you know within within the LGBTQ community for okay maybe kink isn't my scene 
why would I like why would I want to take that away from someone else? Yeah, community, of course, community and support from your community is central when you're part of a group of people who've been marginalized and discriminated against. So you have to find your own community. Not, I mean, you know, certainly we all talk about, you know, our chosen family and we make our chosen family to feel love and, you know, safe comfort and support. But your community is there and particularly during the 80s and the 90s, you know, in a very important way to provide social services that normally the government or the city would be providing, but they're not providing it to you because of your sexual orientation. And, you know, one of the things that struck me when I started to make Blood Sisters, I originally went to the International Ms. Leather contest, and, and I thought I'd just make the documentary about the contest because I thought the contest was just wild and fun, and, and it was, you know, this, this feminist, send, this extreme feminist send-up of a Miss America pageant, and I loved how it turned that on its head, and yet at the same time, it was this platform for activism and fundraising for social justice issues. And that, when I realized just how much of an activist platform all of these contests and parties were, it really opened up my eyes to the dedication and the need for these community activities to keep people alive. You know, back then, the money was being raised for women's health issues. Um, certainly, most of it was going to support a lot of the men who were dying left and right from AIDS and um, mental health issues, all sorts of things. So that was how I started to expand the documentary, when I just saw how rich and complex the community was and how these this group of women were just so kick-ass and intelligent and dedicated to making the world a better place. And for me, I always saw Blood Sisters as a piece of feminist history. And it kind of didn't, you know, it wasn't appreciated for that when it came out, but it's found its place now, and I'm so grateful for that. I mean, it's just so humbling because this is what I had always wanted for it. Because I think these women are so important. Well, what really struck out at me, uh, listeners will know that uh, pretty much every time we have a documentary filmmaker on, I bring this up, just the how, how, how strong a desire I have to move uh, narratives like these, both fictional and, and documentary, away from, you know, trans 101, gay 101, and you, you really don't do any of that in the film, which is so nice. You you made a movie about a about a, a specific uh, community within the broader lesbian community at a time like I mean, this is still this is twenty five years later. So many narratives are still like you know you this you for a feature feature length film. You know you really only have like ninety minutes and to to tell a story. If you're spending a lot of that time just focusing on the rudimentary nature of all of that. You don't really get to like dive in as deep, and you just kind of like went straight for the deep end. And it, I, I think it's a big part of why this this film resonates still so much today. 
Well, thank you for saying that, Ian. You know, and I think we still do have like S and M one hundred and one in there. Right. I love the scenes where Skeeter's instructing you. You know how you can use stuff you buy at the at, at yes, home, yes, you know, the at the things, hardware yeah. store to create your scene because you know toys are expensive, and so she gives the example of how you can afford to be a fabulous top. And, um, yeah, you know, I, this was the first documentary I had made. It's actually the only documentary film I've completely directed on my own. You know, the work that you talked about, Irma Vep, The Last Breath, uh, multi-screen project I did with Zachary Drucker and Flawless Sabrina and most of the work that I've done since Blood Sisters is much more of expanded cinema that shows in museums and art galleries. Um, but doing this film, Blood Sisters, it's just, you know, allows you, it's almost like the making the film is an excuse to be able to ask people these deep questions about their lives. And I've, you know, I can just talk to people about their lives forever because people's lives, you know, even if they seem uninteresting, are generally so fascinating. And so, um, you know, getting in deep with everyone, it took a while because, of course, for obvious reasons, people were very protective. Uh, but once people understood that I wasn't just some outsider that, you know, I was, you know, even though I might not be this full fledged member of the scene, obviously I was part of this scene. They trusted me and we were able to have really deep conversations about what they lost when they came out. Yeah. I mean, it's so, um, a lot of the, the testimony, it's like, the the sort of sense of catharsis kind of resonates and you see kind of like just just the power of like for example when somebody said like you know they're talking about lesbian versus dyke and they're like dyke has power and you feel that like uh another person says like I'm paraphrasing like i identify as a faggot basically and it's like you know we 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 as a as a community as a broader we have uh you know, the broader public, we, we have all these discussions about words and what words have power. I mean, there's a big, the, the word queer is uh, controversial in some circles, but to, to, to see the, the power that, that it had for people in 1995, just like it, it did such a good job of, of really kind of communicating the, the exact power of words, which is kind of like, you know, when you see a tweet that's just kind of passing by, it's kind of easy to forget it or to, to dismiss it. And you hear somebody talking about it from a position of vulnerability, immense vulnerability, at a time when it really wasn't all that safe. You know, we just a year ago had the Supreme Court say, yeah, you can't fire someone for being gay. That's not cool. You you were, people were out and being present 25 years before that. It, it is remarkable. And J.C. Collins, talks in the, who's in the film, talks about, exactly what you're saying in terms of civil rights, where you just, you always have to be vigilant. You can't just think, I mean, obviously we, we saw this with the last administration and, you know, you can't just assume because one administration puts for, you know, gives you certain rights that this is going to continue for the rest of your life. Rights are given and then they're taken away. 
And it has, you know, really serious repercussions to people like yourself. And staying vigilant and understanding your history and understanding how, how no matter what you might be feeling personally about things, that understanding your history and, and your vulnerability and knowing how precarious life is for, I mean, I'll just say the queer community, but for, you know, anyone who is outside of hetero, the heteronormal normative patriarchy, it's incredibly precarious. And you need to put your own feelings aside and fight for that in whatever way you can. And maybe just fighting for it means don't put these other people down who are, you know, in the same group you are. I mean, it's like, you know, Hitler comes to town, it doesn't matter whether you go to temple or not. You're going to the concentration camps if you have a Jewish background, you know? So you have to understand people now, you know, who are speaking out against can't get pride um, need to understand that we're all in this together. And so anyway, getting more about kink at pride and this fight against it, it's interesting because I was, you know, I was reading about kind of the usual thing, you know, the breeders, the people with the children don't want the kinky people there because we need it to be all family wholesome. Even though, of course, plenty of leather people have children and those yeah. children see them in their leather. And, you know, my work has been censored. Many of my projects have been censored. And time and time again, the call is always, we have to protect the children. We can't <laughs> let anyone under 18 come in here and see this. And, you know, children can handle a lot number one, and children need to be educated and exposed to things, and adults need to do their job to educate their children. So there's always, so there's that side. But then a friend of mine recently was telling me, who's, who's much more keyed into the youth on Twitter, she was telling me that a lot of people right now are Gen Z who are complaining that seeing people in leather triggers them in some way. And since they haven't consented to be part of a BDSM scene, uh-huh. that um, they don't think the BDSM community should be marching because it's a matter of consent, that they're being forced to look at them, uh, which you know, is a whole other discussion in terms of responsibility and learning about your history and, you know, growing the fuck up and understanding that just because something makes you feel uncomfortable doesn't mean it shouldn't exist. Yeah, I think that's kind of a distinctly different kind of discussion from the, you know, should cops march at Pride thing, because I... a couple of years ago, I was probably more in the center on that and thinking like, you know, I could think if you take a police officer who's like, obviously, that's kind of a homophobic institution uh, and a lot among, among plenty of other things. I was like, you know, 
if they don't want to march and they're being forced to march by their boss, like, I think that's great. Like, let's just, you know, if we have to shove it down their throats, uh, do that. But then, like, you hear people saying, like, yeah, this is propaganda and you listen to all of that. And I can, you know, see how that's, like, a really uh, different different situation. What also, like, what, what made me also on the topic of censorship, uh, something in the film that really struck out at me, when you hear, like, women's bookstore, feminist bookstore especially like with a lot of like the more comedic portrayals of women's bookstores, like seen in something like Portlandia, you really do <laughs> kind of like think synonymous with lesbian. And yet you hear in uh, your film, they talk about how uh, leather magazines and all of that would be censored even from those spaces. And it's just like, Christ, that, that is, that is, that's an anecdote that, that we really need to not forget because it's important. You know, the, the censorship from con conventionally friendly types of spaces. Yeah, that's what and Patrick Califia brings that up. And Patrick was specifically talking about his books and um, and how it was really important for women at that time to go into these bookstores and say, I want to see this book. You need to buy it because I want to buy it. You need to have it in the store. And so, you know, it forces this commercial transaction that would benefit the store um, yet at the same time, it benefits the writer and uh, creates queer visibility for people who are into BDSM. But what it really brings up is, you know, just how scary S&M is to people. You know, it really hits these taboo it's it's just you know almost like you know the greatest taboo you could ever think of and it you know it does it triggers people and what needs to happen is people need to think about why why are they so upset by seeing a scenario now back then you had um the, what was called the lesbian sex wars, which were a lot of lesbian feminists speaking out against BDSM because their statement was that this is just an offshoot of the patriarchy and that what's happening in these scenes are really, you know, playing out scenarios of patriarchic subject, patriarchal subjugation. Uh, so at least they had a reason. <laughs> like they were able to, as you say, words are important. They were able to use words to say, well, this is why we're against it. But most people don't even go that far. They just recoil. And, you know, it's such a messy place where people have been indoctrinated through religion to be afraid of sexuality and particularly to be afraid of BDSM, even though you look at Catholicism and, you know, it's obvious to see why so many former Catholics are into BDSM because oh, yeah. the whole oh, religion is, um, you know, illustrates in that form. So people need to go inward. There's always this knee-jerk reaction humans have to something that's unfamiliar and that feels scary. And as Queen Cougar says in the film, you know, it is scary. BDSM, it, it is scary. Um, 
But that doesn't mean people don't have the right to do it or the right to be seen and speak out about it. I thought I've been thinking since I, I first rewatched the film uh, a week ago, and then naturally because of uh, it's never a good idea to uh, watch watch something you're going to record on over, over a week before recording because I ended up just basically watching it again. I've seen your film a lot a lot of times now, <laughs> like it, yesterday. But this one thing I was thinking of was the the just how difficult a met from a messaging standpoint the leather community has to like approach the fact that uh you're always going to be on the defense like it, it's something that the trans community has to uh, had to deal with a lot more of with the bathroom things like it, how do you have like how do you have a productive conversation with somebody when the first thing out of your mouth is you have to defend against the notion that that you're a pedophile which like no rational person should 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 start off a conversation at, 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 with with that kind of thing in mind. You can say like you know there's no evidence to suggest this, and yet it's just thrown around. And then like it, one of the quotes in the film, like the person said like I was fisted and I knew I was home. That's not like that's a really powerful testimony for like the power of kink and kink is something like uh you know you were describing you saw it at the the contest and and. Like your your eyes open, you're like I gotta make a film about this. I've seen it in person. You, you know when you, when you see kink in action, it's it's you 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 sort of accept that that you know your your whatever notion you came into it, you see it, and it's it's totally different. It's like an eye opening thing, and yet at the same time, when you're talking about messaging, a person cannot like there's no outlet. For, I mean, there aren't really mainstream outlets for them to like say something like that. That the if you said that on CNN or something, they'd cut to like commercial immediately, and it would never be brought up again. And it is a powerful testimony. Well, that line you quote is from J.C. Collins, and it is one of the best lines in the entire film. She says, "She stuck her fist in my cunt, and I knew I was home." <laughs> And it just sums up everything for JC, right? Uh, and, and it was just this, you know, this one deep sexual action that validated her identity for her, for herself, because she hadn't seen herself represented anywhere and could barely talk about her desires with anyone else because it was so taboo. Now, you know, when I went to the leather contest. This isn't the first time I saw BDSM. I have been involved in BDSM right. yeah, yeah, yeah. before that. But it was the first time I saw this commitment to activism. And you're absolutely right. You know, the conver I, it's really hard to have a productive conversation when you have to start from this place of defense. And just you have to, you know, that the whole entire first part of the argument or discussion is to argue for the right to exist. Um, and, you know, that certainly relates to trans identity as well. I think what's really important people need to understand about pride, though, is, you know, everyone should know this by now. Pride was started after the raid on the Stonewall Inn. And the Stonewall Inn was a bar that was full of a lot of trans customers who had been, you know, it was like their home and some leather people and, of course, you know, some other random people. But it was because of 
what some people might call extreme, the trans people and the leather people that, well, of course, there weren't that many bars in New York City at that time anyway, but this bar was raided. Everyone knows this. Everyone knows. I mean, they should know if you're queer, you should know the history of Stonewall. And then what happens the next day, people fight back. And then what happens that, you know, and immediately after that, so then there's this small march that takes place the next day. And then the following year, 1970, is when the first organized Pride March happens. And, you know, one of the key figures in organizing that Pride March in 1970 was Brenda Howard, who, you know, has been in a little bit of the queer news recently. She was bisexual. She was part of the BDSM scene. And uh, she also went on to be one of the key people to organize the 1987 and the 1993 Marches on Washington. So pride wouldn't exist without the BDSM community and the trans community. Yep. These are the people who started pride. And that's all you need to know, really. And the next time you think that these people shouldn't be included in pride, just remember that. Well, there's a there's a line in the film where uh, somebody says, you know, without activism, I, I wouldn't exist. And it's, it's, it's kind of this broader open question. I, I've been thinking a lot about it. Uh, I've heard a lot of people kind of talking about it. You know, you, you hear a lot of especially I mean, late, I mean, there have been like 100 anti-trans bills this year, more than the previous 10 years combined, which I mean, is a lot of it's just politics, Republican state legislatures. Uh, doing that because they want to, you know, stir up, cause trouble and make make things hard, just suck up all the air and all of that. And then, like, you hear people say, like, they're, you know, they're trying to legislate us out of existence. And I, I've heard I've heard people kind of respond to that and say, like, you know, this isn't going to affect the way that I ha- live my life. Like, you know, it's not some, something out of the Avengers where you just start to start fading away to dust and and disappear and yet, like, I, in in some ways, it's kind of like depressing to think about like the idea that activism is going to be a part of all of our lives, at least you know, in in this lifetime. Like, may, maybe in two hundred years, we can be done with LGBTQ activism, but it doesn't seem like it's going away anytime soon. And just 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 the 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 way the way that your film just says, like, you know, they kind of like accept the fact that this is all going to be a fight. And I kept thinking about how. You know, you're doing a film on leather dykes, and it, it was a really long time before gay marriage was like. I don't think the word gay marriage is uttered once in your film. Like these people were were dealing with with active. Like, I, I did anybody back then think that like something like that was ever even possible, or was, like activism was just so 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 much like so much more centered around just a, a right to, to to be seen as a person as a co- person who contributes to a, a community. Well, there was just, at that time, there certainly was discussion about marriage equality because that, of course, was used against the leather community in terms of trying to prevent them from marching at Pride. But to your bigger point, I don't think this, this, I, 
I don't know. I'm 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 an optimist. I'm an I'm I guess I'm a pessimistic optimist because I <laughs> yes, do believe yes, in you know the innate. Uh, the innate desire of people to just really want to get along and to have a calm life. But I also understand there are people who want to destroy other people. And 200 years, I mean, look at, you know, look at the position of women have been subjugated for hundreds and hundreds of years. Black people have been subjugated for thousands of years. And, you know, and if we want to look in this country, certainly it's been more than 200 years and uh, black people still don't have equal rights here. You know, it may look like they do, but we all know they don't. So you can't ever stop fighting. You just can't. I, I don't I do not believe. I mean, look at the history of this world. People have been fighting, looting, burning down, and murdering since the beginning of written history. Yep. That is not gonna change. So I I do not believe that is ever going to change. So you need to fight for whatever ground you need to stand on and feel proud on and, um, you know, live a life that is more than just subsistence and survival. And unfortunately for a lot of people, you have to, you have to really get out in the street and fight for that in some way. So I wanted to talk, uh, I have a couple, uh, trends of thought with, uh, with regard to the march. And I wanted to start off, uh, one of, one of your subjects refers to George H.W. Bush as a, uh, as, as a homicidal, uh, maniac, which is in, uh, you know, stark contrast to, I, I, I remember just a few years ago when, uh, when H.W. finally died, uh, he had, uh, you know, MSNBC, a, a pretty liberal network, CNN seen as pretty liberal, they're just this fawning coverage, and he's kind of regarded as this. Um, let me see if I can do my impression. A a kinder, gentler America. He's he's <laughs> regarded as this like you know de decent man, and I would have to say like my grandfather's a big LGBTQ uh, ally, and I, I just I wanted to like scream at him like fuck George Bush, fuck Ronald Reagan, and you know what George W. Bush is even more. He's really like. It's 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 hard to try to explain to people that just because Donald Trump said the quiet part out loud that the people who who didn't say the quiet part out loud are are are, are still bad, and like just 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 that that whole idea of of how we might forget how little they did with AIDS and how they just kind of let it run, let it. Let it that's probably the biggest failing of his presidency, and I I think if you start off from the perspective of oh yeah this was a nice decent man. Those people were held hostage to the religious right. I, that that's not very decent, in my opinion. <laughs> I certainly agree, and you have to be an educated um, media consumer and understand that you can't buy this propaganda that's being peddled by CNN. You know, to pick uh, what's considered to be a liberal news source, it's all propaganda. I mean, from all sides, really. And so you as a citizen 
need to be critical. You need to educate yourself. You need to read a lot of different sides, you know, and this takes time. A lot of people don't have the time to do that, or you need to find the sources you trust. And of course, this is what social media feeds off of, you know, the loop of just, you know, the algorithm that, you know, keeps feeding you stuff that you like. So you have your biases get reinforced and reinforced, which of course, as we see by the rise of the militias and QAnon is really dangerous. Uh, so it's hard. And, and I actually feel a lot for young people being brought up with social media because people now are exposed to more information on a daily basis than they would have ever had in their entire lives right. before the advent of computers and social media. And that's not to say I'm anti-technology because certainly I am not, but it's... It's a real challenge. How do you find truth? How do you make your own truth? And how do you not just be a complacent viewer and talk back? That's really what it's about. You need to talk back, whether it's being a activist, being out on the street, or a filmmaker like myself, putting something out in the world, or even just having a conversation with a podcast while it's playing in your ear, you can just talk out loud and talk back to it. Uh -huh. Don't just, you know, patently just allow yourself to suck everything in without digesting it and having a response to it. 100% agree. And, you know, what? one thing that also kind of stuck out at me with regard to the march was... Uh, you had some you had some very uh, re reasonable criticisms of the fact that yeah Bill Clinton chose to be out of town at that time and I think one of the most poisonous things about the modern discourse is but we're seeing it right now with um, there was a story about how uh, the the Justice Department is going to defend uh, I mean, lawyers have to you know if you're going to argue a case you have to say you're going to vigorously defend something and they're going to defend the right for uh, religious schools to discriminate against LGBTQ people. And the Justice Department is going it said, yes, we will vigorously defend their right to discriminate. And people are looking like, what the fuck is this? Um, if you criticize Joe Biden's sort of, you know, the Equality Act is not getting passed. People don't really seem to care about that in Washington. If you criticize that, 99 percent of the time maybe one percent of the time it doesn't happen but 99 percent of the time you get people say well, what do you want you want trump back and it's like no i want the guy that said he was going to do this to go and do it and i furthermore i don't want you to do their dirty work by saying it's bad for me to say that this bad thing that they've done is bad like can we like do we do we do we need to do we need to like rush like i think the 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 presidential politics right now has so much rot in it. If, if this film came out today and you had sort of this muted kind of criticism of saying like, yeah, you know what? It would have been nice if Bill Clinton had showed up to this. I think you probably would have gotten just as much shit for saying that as you would for a lot of the uh, sadomasochism stuff. Yeah, there's no room for critical discourse in this country. And politicians are only concerned with getting reelected. That really becomes their, you know, main goal 
once they get elected. I mean, I don't know about Biden if he's actually thinking about getting reelected at his age, but that's clearly what anyone, what everyone is concerned with. If it's not them getting reelected, it's their best buddy, you know, it's the team. And actual citizens and policies and what we might consider to be uh, moral choices that benefit human beings' well-beings, those things get pushed to the side. They're secondary next to just grabbing power and hanging on to power. And it's so, you know, it's... We all know those types of people that just want power, they just want yep. attention, and then they get the attention, and then they have nothing to say. You know, like, if, all right, you got your moment here, do something. Let's, well, you know, really do something and, and make a difference. You're in a position to make a difference. And the whole system is set up, it's, you know, set up to make it very difficult to do that. Did you get criticism for for what you said about about Clinton? I mean, it it, just, it it harkens back to just a time it was so much healthier when you could say, yeah, it would like I people in the documentary that nobody was saying that Clinton was worse than Bush. I I think people were engaging with that kind of subject on on a very reasonable uh, level that kind of really understood what was there. And I, I just think in this day we. Our media has allowed George W. Bush to be re- rehabilitated for causing two wars just because at funerals he gives Michelle Obama a hard candy. Right. So superficial. Yeah. I just, uh, like, I, I don't think that the kind of, like, I, I looked back at your film, like, you know, it shouldn't be the case that the discourse is healthier in 1995 than it is in 2021. It re- it just it shouldn't be the case that we have a, a you know more reasonable discourse back then than we do now. And yet, like I'm, I'm watching it, and I'm like, I don't think you can get away with that nowadays. <sighs> uh, you know, and it's not no like you one said, came like, up to either. Yeah, no one came up to me and specifically said you shouldn't have put that thing in about Clinton, uh, but. I did have a few people that weren't part of the scene or queer activists necessarily, but they were people in the film world who came up to me and said, I shouldn't have included the section on wash on the March on Washington, Uh which I thought was really interesting because I, to me, that was such an important section and and like, and I couldn't understand why they were saying that and i never really got an answer as to why people were saying that and and i just felt like they were missing the whole point of the film and that they didn't really understand the struggle that we're talking about here because if you really understood the struggle you would clearly understand how going to this march in 1993 on washington which was one of the largest civil rights marches in the country at that point in time, you know, up until that point in time, um, was, was, you know, it was just galvanizing and it was so important. And there was a lot going on there as well in terms, uh, in fact, we talk a little bit about it in the audio commentary 
with the release of the new disc and and um you know i believe when it's streaming you'll get all these different uh uh they call them dvd extras but they won't be on you know they'll be on dvd but they'll also we can be still streaming. call them dvd extras, we can still call them dvd extras right <laughs> um but one of the on the audio commentary throughout the film that i did with queen cougar and skeeter Cougar talks a lot about that day and how even then that the leather contingent was being kept on the sidelines uh -huh. and was just waiting and waiting all day long. And the people who, you know, were the, all of the marshals and everyone else who was involved in the march were ignoring them and keeping them back. And you see this great, you know, the great moment with Tala Brand. Brandeis, who was a powerful trans woman who was part of the scene with her 25-foot bullwhip. She just took out that whip and started cracking it, and the whole other contingent just marched behind her, and it was one of the most moving experiences I've ever felt. You know, walked, walking past the White House, walking past Congress with this giant trans woman dressed in black with a big black cowboy hat and a 25-foot bullwhip making space saying we're here we need our space move over you know get out of the way because we are taking to the streets right now and there you know and that leather contingent had people from all over the country that wasn't just san francisco what was so powerful about that scene too is so much of the documentary is like is very intimate accounts from people like you feel like you're in a like you feel like you're in like a quiet like safe room with people sharing their most intimate thoughts and it's it's a very personal feeling and then with the march you 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 really get reminded that yeah this this isn't just a community in San Francisco it's not just you know communities that you can find in in cities no this is this is a national movement and it's it's bigger than any individual person so to see that it's very it's, it's fascinating to me that people thought that that sh shouldn't shouldn't be there i mean it, it it's like a perfect reminder that yeah i mean we hear all the time and I, we're hearing it less which is nice but you know when, when you're in the closet it's the loneliest feeling in the world and you know when you when you meet these kind of community when you meet when you find your community it just opens your eyes and to see that. I mean, it's just such a rem perfect reminder for everybody out there. I mean, a lot of the listeners of the show are people who live in more rural areas who don't necessarily have as much access to community and stuff. So, yeah, every every ma major powerful reminder of just just how how big our community is, I think, is extremely important. I totally agree. So, thank you, Anne. Thank you. Um, so I, I'll link to uh, June 29th is when the streaming and DVD release of uh, Blood Sisters is out. I'll link to all of that. Uh, it's been it's been a, a great pleasure, Michelle. This is a this is an important important film for. Uh, I know we 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 get, we we attract a lot of the people who want to uh, learn more about our community. This is a really powerful film, and you know what? It's also it's fun. You sit down. It's it's a great feature movie. I saw it a couple of years ago, and I I love it. It it's really it it ages well. I've I've seen it twice in the past week. Uh, you know, it's 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 fascinating, and it's a great way to just look at. It's a great '90s documentary. Great great feel good feelings all around. Thank you so much for coming on. 
Thank you, Ian. I really appreciate you having me here. And you're right. The film is really fun to watch. It's great music. Great music. Great, great music. Great music, yeah. Uh, all the men. Yeah. Anyway, uh, yeah, check out check out Blood Blood Sisters. Uh, you learn a lot. It's it's sort of those always always valuable perspective. And you know what? Kink belongs to pride. I think that's the best note to end on. Anyway, thank you for listening, and we will see you next time. Oh,